All right, Matthew, now we actually start with the book. Last week we talked about the book. Now we'll start with words from the book. I should have handed out one. Somebody got Matthew open and just read Matthew 1.1. One, one. <laughs> Justin's got it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the book of the beginning, or the book of beginnings, and I'll go ahead and warn you, today's lesson, we're going to do a deeper dive into some of the minutia, the specific words that are in this early section. Um, what What happens here, what Matthew says here in this introduction, sets the table for all the themes that are going to be so important to Matthew throughout the book. And so we need to dive into them a little bit so that as we unpack them later, we know what we're dealing with. So we'll get a little bit down into the weeds on some key words here, but don't worry, that's not the way this whole study is going to be. It's not going to be a one word at a time study of Matthew, but today it may feel that way a little bit. So we start with the key words. And the first key word is Genesis, which your Bibles translate as genealogy. But this is actually the book of Genesis, the book of origins of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Um, What's the first question that you ask when you pick up a book? When somebody hands you a book, somebody recommends to you a book, you're browsing through the bookstore, what's the first thing you want to know about the book? Yeah, what what is this? What, what, What kind of book is this? What is this book about? What is the purpose of this book? And so Matthew starts first verse, first phrase by answering that question. What is this book about? Well, this is the book of Genesis, the book of origins of Jesus Christ. That Greek word, Genesis, is all about beginnings. The first Genesis was about the beginning of all things, the beginning of all things from our point of view, of God creating uh, the earth and everything that is in it. This is that kind of beginning. What will happen in this book is that dramatic of an event. And so this Genesis is as dramatic as that one. Um, This is about a new beginning. The new beginning of the Messiah, the Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. So Matthew sets us on notice that what we're going to deal with in this book is, in one sense, something very new. And that makes sense. Jesus will bring a new covenant as the new Abraham. Uh, He will bring a new law as the new Moses. And he will bring a new obedience as the new Adam. Jesus is going to bring a lot that is new. But every one of those things that Jesus brings new has its origins earlier. Just as Jesus has earlier origins than just the story that's in this gospel. And so that's where this starts. Everything new has an origin. Everything new has a genesis. It comes from something before it. Um, Even Jesus And so this book is going to be about Jesus, and where it has to start is with what Jesus came from. Where did Jesus come from? Um, It's going to be about the 
the fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy and the waiting for the fulfillment of those prophecies, but it's going to be about how the fulfillment of those prophecies, which are ancient, is some, it ushers in something entirely new. And so you've got, from the very beginning, this kind of two sides of the coin of new and old, of brand new and pre-established coming from something else. So this is the book of Genesis in that sense. It's the book of Genesis of whom? The genealogy of whom? Well, Matthew includes Jesus and Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is uh, Jesus? Jesus is the Greek form of a Hebrew name. What name? Joshua. Uh, Jesus is the uh, uh, Jesus is a shortened version. It means Yahweh saves, which is what Joshua. Uh, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, and Jesus is the shortened form that's like the contraction, uh, Jesus saves. And then Christ, what is Christ? Is, is his name Mr. Christ? Is that Jesus' surname? What, what is Christ? Yeah, it's a title that means anointed one. Um, Christ is the one people are looking forward to. So this is hard for us because when we think Christ, the only Christ we care about is the Lord Jesus Christ, the real one true Christ for the most important thing that happens in the world, which is our salvation from our point of view. Um, But Christ is a title. Christ is in all types of literature. Christ figures are extremely common in storytelling, because what Christ is, is the anointed one, the chosen one, the one to whom the prophecies looked forward to, whatever those prophecies were and from ever they came from. So think about uh, Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. He is the chosen one. He's the anointed one who's going to take over the throne. Think about Harry Potter. Harry is the chosen one. The prophecies are about him. They are Christ figures because that's what that word means. It's a title, the one that you were waiting for, the one who's going to do all the things that we've been waiting to have done. Uh, We cry out for the fulfillment of these prophecies. The world, the earth is waiting for the fulfillment of these prophecies. Christ is the title of the one who will fulfill those prophecies. Now, that's why... The New Testament is so regularly concerned that we not be led away by what? By what what title does the New Testament use? False Christs, anti-Christs. Because the way that we are going to be deceived, we have wired within us from the fall a longing for redemption. We have a longing for the fulfillment of all things. That's wired within us. So we are eager for that, and we're always looking for the answer to our problems. And what the New Testament tells us to always be on guard against is these false Christs, ones who will appear or may even claim to be the ones that we're waiting for, and yet they turn out to be liars, and they deceive us, and many will be led astray by these false Christs. Um, This happened even in the New Testament with Jesus himself, where this messianic promise 
that these promises will be fulfilled, and here's what that means for God's people, that promise was so misunderstood by, the, by God's people, the ones who had the promise, that even when they're looking at Jesus, who is the Christ, the real one, they believe that for a few minutes, And then the moment Jesus made it clear that he wasn't actually going to conquer the Roman government and take over the world and make Israel a military power, they accused Jesus of being a false Christ, which is why they had him crucified. Because they misunderstood what it was they were waiting for, what the prophecies said. Um, And the reason why that concept appears so much in great storytelling, great literature and movies, is it's wired into the foundations of the universe. God made promises and we're waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. There is a chosen one who will fulfill those promises. And what Matthew claims, first phrase, first verse, is that this book is about that one. This book is about the one who is chosen, who will fulfill those promises. Yahweh saves, and Yahweh saves through this one who is the Christ. Um, who also, he's, as he gets to the genealogy, he's going to tell you, is a man, Jesus of Nazareth. This specific human being from this genealogy is that one, the chosen one. Questions about that much, and then we'll get into these other titles, son of David and son of Abraham. Let me take a coffee sip. No, this is the Greek word for beget that I'll get to in a minute. Yeah, I didn't want to have to write it under pressure later. It's very hard. Uh, my Greek's a little rusty, and it wasn't even good when it wasn't rusty. Um, uh, son of David, son of Abraham. All right, let's talk about these titles. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David is Matthew's preferred title. No New Testament author will use son of David as much as Matthew is going to use son of David. He uses it 17 times in the gospel. David was the conquering king, right? There were prophecies pre-David that led up to David, that David himself fulfilled. And then there's a whole bunch of prophecies that use David as kind of the template for the chosen one, the one who's going to come. There will be a greater David. There'll be a David who doesn't fail, a David who doesn't sin, a David whose kingship expands over all the earth and not just this finite kingdom that that David has. Um, There'd be a David who would come whose uh, son of David would sit on the throne forever. Whereas David's sons were a bunch of bozos, there's a future son of David who will reign forever and his kingdom will know no end. So there's all those messianic promises that were uh, important, that were wrapped up in Son of David. And that's the part of the promise that the Israelites so often misunderstood because David's kingdom was, by and large, an earthly kingdom. David's conquests were, by and large, military expansion and physical security for his nation. And so the people of Israel would listen to those promises. There's a future son of David who will sit on the throne of David and have a greater kingdom. And what they hear is, oh, more acreage in Israel. And what God's actually saying is, Israel's easy. Land, I I can make land with my voice. I'm giving a kingdom that is much grander than that. And they didn't get it. That's the rejection of Jesus. So if that's what we mean... 
when we say son of David, if we're conjuring up all those images of David and of, of the promises that the Christ should fulfill, why is Matthew the one who emphasizes this title so much? Because his audience is Jewish. He's writing from the beginning in a way that his hearers will be deeply invested in what he's saying. There's a real valuable lesson for us in the way that these Gospels are written. Where again, the the message is inclusive in one sense in that it's valuable for anyone. Anyone reads the Gospel of Matthew. All the facts are here that are important for the Gospel of Matthew. But Matthew, from the first sentence of the first page is working to hook his audience. He knows what they care about, and he's going to speak to their concerns. He's not going to speak vaguely or generally. He's going to say, you are a Jew. You are waiting for the son of David. That's who this guy is. Let me tell you about him. That's what this book's going to be about. And so he's speaking directly to the audience that he's trying to go right after. Um, This is uh, the genealogy and its connection to David is going to be essential for a persnickety Jew because a persnickety Jew is going to say, look, I don't even want to have a conversation about whether or not this guy is the Christ if he is not descended from the line of David because our Christ, the promise is clear, will be a descendant of David. So start there. Show me that and then we'll talk about everything else. But if he's not even a descendant of David, why are we even having this conversation? And so the genealogy in this connection to David that will be emphasized in a minute is proving that Christ is the rightful heir, or at least that he could be. That he at least fulfills, he checks that box, so to speak. So if that's the emphasis, son of David, why does Matthew also include son of Abraham as the next title? And there's two parts to this answer, but why... Why son of Abraham? It, it's, it's, it's the right start. Keep going. Abraham proves Hebrew bona fides, right? Abraham's the father of the Jews. So it does that same thing as it did with David. It proves Hebrew bona fides. But what was the promise to Abraham? I will make you a father of many nations, not just Israel. From the beginning, the promise to the father of Israel was that the kingdom would ultimately be more than Israel. That, so it's, it's inclusive to us Gentiles too that this story he's going to tell is not just how the God of Israel saved the people of Israel and answered the promises to Israel in Jesus the Christ. It's going to be how the God of Israel who made a promise to Abraham from the beginning that he would be the father of many nations is now calling in those nations to himself in a new way, in a way that wasn't present in the Old Testament. So son of David and son of Abraham show both the fulfillment of the prophecies made to Abraham and David and the expansiveness of those promises. Um, God's people were inclined to think in very narrow lanes, very finite terms. You know who will be saved? 
to people who look like us and come from where we're from and have similar X, Y, and Z. And God says, nope, that's not how I save it all. That's not what I promised Abraham. You guys think I promised Abraham this, and I promised him that. And that's what Christ is going to bring, my Christ. Um, So that is the son of Abraham. So Matthew sets the stakes here with these two titles because he's making a bold claim from verse 1 that if Jesus is who Matthew says he is, then Jesus is going to restore the throne of David, free God's people from bondage, captivity, slavery, their enemies, however you want to say it, bring freedom to God's people, and be the hope of the nations. That is a pretty bold claim about the man that this book is going to be about. Fulfillment of all those promises, deliverance for God's people, and the hope of the nations in one phrase of one verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. That is a huge sentence. It's all wrapped up. All of Matthew's claims, everything that we're supposed to expect from the rest of this book is wrapped up in that. Um, And we see from the New Testament epistles that it wasn't well understood by God's people, right? Israel couldn't get over the fact that Israel doesn't mean Israel, right? That not all Israel by genetics is Israel by faith. And not all Israel by faith is Israel by nationality. And you see that over and over again in the, in the New Testament epistles. We just got through that with Romans, where Paul's having to deal with the Jews in Rome, Jewish Christians, who are saying, well, yeah, but they've they got to be us first, right? Said, no, no, you missed it. You don't get it. Um, the Jews, God's people, had a real hard time, and we're here again in American history, believing that enemies does not equal other nations. That the way God looks at his enemies is not from a nationalistic perspective. Our national enemies are God's divine enemies. Um, But that enemy is captivity to sin, not captivity to nations, captivity to death, not being conquered. Being conquered is not the worst thing that can happen to a people. The worst thing that can happen to a people is to be in bondage to death with no way out. And that's what God talks about. And then hope. Hope is even misunderstood. Because God's people connect hope to physical and material security. If I am in the strongest nation in the world, then I'm secure. If I have enough money in my bank account, my 401k, then I'm secure. If I have all of these materialistic trappings, which are great gifts of God that we enjoy, then I'm okay. That's not the nature of hope whatsoever the nature of hope is if all those things get burned up yet we have hope in christ and we'll be with him in the last day Uh, and so all these promises and what the fulfillment looks like is going to be a really tricky thing for god's people to get and we're going to read the gospels and we're going to say oh these idiot disciples oh these stupid galileans it's so clear what we should what we would have believed if Jesus was in front of us saying this stuff. And then you have to look at the epistles and say, turns out, no, turns out we wouldn't have. Because the history of God's people is a history of confusion about what God has promised. And we forget, we turn aside, we wander away from the the narrow way of God's promises. 
and we get confused and we get upset and we get sad and we get all these other things, these feelings that we feel, these difficulties that we bring upon ourselves are because we've forgotten what God has actually said. Um, that wasn't unique to the disciples or the first century Jews. wasn't unique to the folks being written to in the epistles. It, it's not unique to us. This is what God's people do. We forget what God said. Um, the gospel ends with the Great Commission, the Gospel of Matthew. And so, yes, Jesus came from the Jews and to the Jews. The gospel will make that point clear. But this son of David, king of the Jews, is also a son of Abraham and will send out his good news to all of the nations of the earth. In fact, he will be a blessing to all of the earth. Um, So that's the summary of verse 1. This book, what is this book about? I pick up a book. First thing I want to know is what is this book about? And Matthew tells you this book is about Jesus, the chosen one of God, who came in fulfillment of both kingdom promises to David and expanded kingdom promises to Abraham. And Jesus will be the fulfillment of all those things. And that is what this book is about. And that, there Matthew implies, is why you should read it. It's why you should care. Think, oh, that's a pretty interesting claim you got there, Matthew. Let's see what happens. Questions about that much? Yeah, you won't care about that, but you may not have ever known that those promises to the Jews, God said all along, will be expanded beyond Israel's borders. And so you would be a little bit surprised to hear that, you know, your friend Joe the Jew never told you that these promises could actually be for you as well. Other questions? Yeah. I think um, we, we can say as much as the New Testament says about why that is, and it is in large part to expose the arrogance of the human soul, <laughs> that we think it's about us, that if God saved us, it's because of something about us. Look at me. Look at what I have. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. And God says, fine, I'll give you every privilege in the world. And without me, you'll reject me. I'll give you every advantage that exists. And left to your own choices, you will be my enemy. And, and I don't, this is a tough way to talk because it's speculative. It's hard to imagine how God could have shown that to us so clearly. Apart from having a chosen people who did have every single advantage. And not, they had five stragglers who walked away from the faith, but they all left the faith all the time. And God would come dragging them back and forgive them. And then AD 70 is, is, uh, when we get to the Olivet Discourse, we'll talk about this in detail. But AD 70 is God saying, 
my plan with you ends here. The, the word Israel never in theological terms means nation of Israel after AD 70. The Bible's entire concept of Israel as a promised chosen people of God is in rubble on the floor of Jerusalem at that moment. And then everything from then on is God saying, see, I, you as an individual, Jew or Gentile, I still redeem you. I still abound in forgiveness and mercy. But I made my point here. Left, given every possible privilege. And without me, you, this is where you end up, is in a big pile of rubble. That's what I take away. Pretty intense lesson. The Olivet Discourse is serious business when we get to Jesus talking about these things in the last days and how God's plan um, was designed to pivot. It's not like the pivot of God's plan was responsive. God thought the Jews would be faithful and so he needed a plan B. It's all God's plan start to finish. It has a built-in pivot that should surprise everyone. Um, So we'll get there. Genealogies are easy to skip over. That's the next part of the text, right? Um, actually, Justin, would you, since you're there, would you go ahead and read that from the end part of verse 1 through, I don't know, what is that, 11? I'm making up verses. Yeah. The times of deportation of Babylon ended up. Yeah. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Shalmon, and Shalmon the father of Boaz, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of What? what? I thought I thought this guy was a great evangelist. I I thought Matthew's goal was to get people to believe in Jesus, and he starts his great evangelistic book with a list of names. What is he doing? Genealogies are really easy to skip over. And they feel insignificant. And they are insignificant if you don't know what's important about them and the people that are included in them. And to prevent those verses from being excruciatingly boring, the burden is actually on us to listen to the names 
and, and to get the story, the image in our mind of what that name conveys. What, what does hearing that name make me remember? And if I don't know the answer, then I got to go read the Old Testament because they're all there. They're all there. And the point of the list of names is not, let me just show you a list of names that eventually end up with Jesus. These names are picked on purpose. Every one of them is on purpose to communicate something about what Matthew is trying to set us up for, about his claims made in the introduction. And so it's our job, not Matthew's, to make this interesting. It's our job to either already know, because we're steeped in the Old Testament, as his original hearers would have been, as Jews, they hear these names, they don't have to go do their homework, they know exactly what he means by them. We have to do a little more homework. We don't study the Old Testament uh, that carefully all of the time. So, uh, the Jews have, have made their question, so to speak, if Jesus is the chosen one, then you've got to show me your work. If you're telling me that this is the one of whom all the prophecies speak, Show me your work. Prove that out for me that that's possible. And that's, that's what big picture Matthew's doing. But the way he does it, he makes a lot of individual choices. Um, there are specific prophecies along the way about the Messiah that can be used as litmus tests, as indicators of whether or not this Christ is the true Christ. If it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and Jesus was born in Madrid, then not the Messiah, right? We can make those sorts. So part of the genealogy answers those. It checks off the lineage prophecies that are required of the Christ. But the way Matthew handles the genealogy, the names he picks, the way he organizes them, the, 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 the words that he uses other than the names are to highlight this promise and fulfillment aspect of the Old and the New Testament that we talked about already. It's as if Matthew is saying, History is important, and where Jesus fits in redemptive history is really important. And I'm going to say, Matthew, I'm going to say as much as I can say about Jesus just in this genealogy by the way that I construct it. Um, and then also, by the way, Jesus' Jesus's genealogy is impressive. David's there. Abraham's there, right? Like, this is an important person from an important line. He is not too uh, lowly or insignificant for you to consider him the king of the Jews. Um, the structure is what's called a chiastic structure, which just means X. And it's where you make point one, point two, point three, and then you reverse it, point three, point two, and point one. All right? That's a chiastic structure. So I, uh, red light, yellow light, green light, green light, red light, red you get any of those words that I just stumbled over in the end, right? That's a chiastic structure. It makes an X. And that's what he does here with Abra uh, uh, Jesus, David, Abraham. Abraham, David, Jesus. That's the way that this chiastic structure forms. So those are the three sort of highlights. Those are the three big elements that we hang everything else on. Um, and the structure is going to be built around that. If you focus on those three names, then you'll see the whole structure. And Matthew explicitly draws that structure out to you uh, later. But if you focus on those three names, you can see what's going on here. He starts with Abraham. Why do you start with Abraham? Abraham wasn't the first human who ever lived. After all, when Luke does a genealogy, who does Luke start with? 
Adam, because Adam was the first human who ever lived. And if you're going to do a thorough genealogy, then you should be thorough. Why does Matthew start with Abraham? His audience. They know everybody's from Adam. They want to know who's from Abraham. <laughs> they want uh, that to be the beginning of uh, people because it's the beginning of them as a people. Uh, Matthew will trace Jesus's legal standing. Um, remember in the ancient world that your status would be determined by the head of household. Your citizenship was from the head of household. So your legal standing, even though Joseph was not biologically Jesus's father, Joseph was Jesus's legal father. And so Matthew will trace the legal genealogy of Jesus. Luke will trace the uh, bloodline, so to speak, the genetic genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, which will come through uh, Mary. Um, Yeah, and he's, he's, yes, and I'll, I'll unpack that here in a second. Um, yeah. You said um, that Matthew constructed the genealogies in a specific way, but didn't, like, same question, didn't God construct it? Yes and no. So I'll talk about um, ancient genealogies in a minute, but they don't include every generation. They don't have to. And then what person you choose from a specific generation? Uh, he chooses females sometimes where it would make sense where typically you would have picked the male and then he um, he adds commentary to some people but not all people to draw your attention to a specific story or event so he does a lot of constructing though God controlled the who was born when part Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers so this is a great example Judah is Judah the oldest of the brothers Nope. Is Judah the strongest? Is Judah really anything important? No. Except, what's the one important fact about Judah for this genealogy? Matt, would you read Genesis 49, 10? Hebrews 7.14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about kings. Judah was the tribe of kings. Judah is where kings come from. And so when you're making the connection between Jesus as the fulfillment of David's kingship, David's royal throne... David's royal throne is grounded in Judah. And so you got to get Judah in there. So that's an example of he picked a different person from that generation than who just a straightforward genealogy uh, may have chosen. Um, women in a genealogy, that's not a normal thing for this period of time. Um, you traced families through heads of families. And yet you read this genealogy and you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Wait a minute. All of those women are known for immorality. 
This is not the all-star uh, Hall of Fame here, either their own immorality or immorality connected to them, at least. Uh, look at verse 6, the way he highlights the immorality. The father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The way he says it is to highlight both Bathsheba's sin, Bathsheba being the mother, is tracing the line, but you're not allowed to think about Bathsheba's sin without thinking about David's sin, right? Because what did he do? He killed Uriah. He made him dead. So Uriah gets to show up in this genealogy for no reason other than to highlight the fact that David did a really, really bad, sinful thing here. Matthew puts a stake in the ground that Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, comes from the right line, but that line is not holy. That line includes a lot of sin. The sin of that line is why we need a Jesus. The failures of David are why we need a Jesus. Because you can't just have a better David and get the job done. You've got to have a perfect David, one who is perfect in holiness. And so Matthew puts that stake in the ground, right in the middle of the genealogy. Jesus came from all kinds and came for all kinds. And that's an important lesson for us to get in our head. These women also have something else in common. If we're writing a genealogy to Jews with an emphasis on Jewishness, what stands out about these women? None of them are Jews. Ruth was even worse because Ruth was a Moabite. And what does the Bible say about Moabites? Who's got Deuteronomy 23.3? There were some foreign nations of which God said they could not enter the assembly of God's people for three generations. Did I say generations? There are some people, some nationalities, of which God says they cannot enter the assembly of God's people for three generations. Of the Moabites, ten. Ten. We don't want any Moabites up in here. Now, why is that? It's because when the people were fleeing and the people were trying to escape to freedom, the Moabites, instead of helping them, took advantage of them and robbed them and killed them and stole their stuff while they were uh, being pursued and trying to get away to safety. Moabites did bad things and deserved this rebuke and curse from God. But Ruth was a Moabite. And so Matthew puts her name in the genealogy and puts a stake in the ground. Jesus came from all kinds and comes for all kinds. These people's stories, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they're also really weird stories, right? I mean, Ruth's story is not about personal unrighteousness, but it's a pretty weird story. Uh, Judah and Tamar? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's some story. Uh, Boaz and Rahab? David and Bathsheba? And Matthew brings all of those stories, one might say unnecessarily, into the genealogy. He didn't have to highlight them. He didn't have to put these women in the genealogy. He did. And with some of these women, just in case you forgot every part of the story, he included some little details so that you'd remember every part of the story. 
That's what you're supposed to do in the genealogy. You're supposed to go through those names. And when you get to the last of the women's names that are not Jews and that have all these weird stories, you're supposed to actually think to yourself, wow, God has worked in some really weird ways. That's all you're supposed to think. Because what's going to happen in the life of Jesus God's going to work in some really weird ways. He's going to take on human flesh. What? And then he's going to die. What? All of this is going to be weird. And we're supposed to remember that there are very strange ways through which God can accomplish his purposes. So that is just a highlight of why you should actually read the genealogy and care. Let me tell you a couple other things from this genealogy. Because it's a lot of begats. So the Greek word for begat is genao. Isn't that pretty? And uh, it shows up a lot. Look how many times in your English text it says was the father of, or uh, depending on what translation you have, it may be a little different. But every time you see was the father of, it's that word. And it shows up all the time. That word means from natural reproduction came this human being. This person had a naturally born of a man and woman conceiving. That's, that's how this person exists. And you see that word over and over and over and over again until you don't. Who's got verses 15 and 16? Contrast these two verses. Somebody? Anybody? Did I not write that one down? Jonathan? I gave you Isaiah, didn't I? I must have forgotten. Justin, read 15 and 16. Do you hear that difference? The father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, the husband of, of whom Jesus was born. Begat is not used for Jesus. That's something that we're supposed to notice as we read through this genealogy carefully, is Joseph did not begat Jesus, nor did Mary begat Jesus. He was, look at the, look at the word construction in English. It's totally passive voice. She passively bore this child, if one can imagine such a thing. Uh, And that of whom Jesus was born is feminine in the Greek. It is very clearly talking about her. It's not Jesus was born of Joseph. It is Jesus was passively, as a contrast to begat, was passively born of Mary. And Joseph was her husband. It's the way that that's included. Um, That is a big flashing red light. You're reading through this genealogy, you're stopping to look at the list of names, and then you go back and you read through it, and you're begat, 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 begat. Wait, what? And you get to that last one, and it is very, very different. The rhythm of the begat theme is broken, and there is no one else in this entire genealogy that is like Jesus. That's a good theological point. There is no one else in this genealogy that is like Jesus. Questions about that? And then a couple closing thoughts. Is there any importance of the the numbers in the 
That's next. That's one of my closing points. Yep. You're on it. What about people like Xiaoqiu or Zerubbabel, but that aren't really highlighted too much? Just you, the connections? You need to remember them. You go, go back and remember where the Bible talks about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in a dozen messianic promises in the Minor Prophets. I've made up the dozen number just from the top of my head, so it might be five. But it is a commonly used noun in messianic and apocalyptic contexts. We're supposed to remember these things. And if we don't know them, we're supposed to go learn these things. Um, And that's part of what the genealogy causes us to do. Um, David is the turning point of this genealogy. So if you kind of look at our chiastic structure, David is what sits in the middle. And we explained all the reasons why that would be the case for a Jewish audience. Um, Even though God's promises had been long delayed, they were not forgotten. Uh, Would you all read Isaiah 9, 6 and 7? You've got to get in your mind how significant that is for Matthew's original audience. You've got to get in your mind how long they've been waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled. They've waited so long, generations came and went who forgot that it was ever a promise. And it had to be remembered. It had to be recovered. They have waited so long for God to fulfill his promise that they wonder if it's ever going to happen. And the claim that Matthew makes in this opening of his gospel is that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will fulfill those promises. And so the reason why the hearer, especially the Jewish hearer, is going to keep reading is because they they just let down their guard enough to allow themselves to wonder if it could be true. Has God remembered his promise? Is it possible that God has remembered what he promised? You know, in the genealogy, verses 7 through 10, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but Justin brought up some of those names. You've got a list of kings. They're not, uh, they're not a bunch of good guys in there, right? That's pretty much the history of Israel's kings, is that there's not a lot of good guys in that list. But good or evil, they're all part of the lineage. They're all part of the plan of God. And even wicked, determined, powerful kings cannot thwart the purposes of God. God's will will be done with or without our help. And so these people who set themselves on the throne of Israel and did everything they could to thwart God's purposes, they're included in this list in a little bit just sort of a, see, <laughs> you think you're so good? You thought you were more powerful than God? You thought, you thought that you'd undone the promises, and yet the promises come to fruition. Um, The genealogy is incomplete, as I said. Some people and some generations are skipped. 
That is normal in ancient genealogies. And it's not a grammar problem because this word doesn't mean, um, it doesn't have to mean son. It can mean grandson, great-grandson. It means that you are in a genetic line to another human being through natural generation. Uh, and, and so it's, it's more of a descendant connection. Rahab is not immediately the mother of Boaz. Boaz. Eve is not immediately the mother of all living, and yet the word begat is used there as well. Um, so that's not a, not a problem. So what do you make then of the fact that we have these groups of 14 and that Matthew calls our attention to? It's 14 generations from Abraham to uh, David, from Solomon to Jeconiah, and from Jeconiah to Jesus is 14 generations. Why 14? Certain numbers have cultural significance to, to people groups and religious groups. And uh, I was in a hotel last week in Hickory, North Carolina, where none of the rooms were 13. So I go up to the, I'm on room uh, 411 was my room. I'm walking down the hall, 17, 15, and I walked right by 11 because I expected 13 and it wasn't there. Why is there no room 13? Because some people are crazy. And 13 has the significance of bad luck in our culture, so they didn't want to build a room 413. Fine. Well, 7 is one of those numbers in Hebrew culture that has significance, and multiples of the number have significance. That's why in Revelation it'll say things like 7,000, because it's 7, which is perfection, times 1,000, which just means grandness, completeness, exactly the right number. So 7 times 2, 14, conveys the same thing, completeness, fullness. Um, it's also the case that, uh, oh, by the way, in the way that Matthew wrote it, Jesus is the firstborn of the seventh group of seven. So he's the first of the seventh seven. He is the firstborn of the fullness of the perfection of the completion. It, it doesn't matter to us. It's not some secret code. We don't have to get hung up on the numbers, but it is why Matthew did it because it's very interesting to a Hebrew reader. It does lend more credibility uh, to what he's saying to the Hebrew leader. Also, the uh, Hebrew doesn't have numbers. Hebrew uses letters for numbers, and the numerical value of David is 14. Um, again, no secret code. It's, it's, it's not trying to hide something from us. It's trying to highlight something for a Hebrew audience who would have understood it, that the descendant of David has come. So that's it. That's what we got from the genealogy in Matthew. Matthew is preparing us. He's preparing his hearers for the story of Jesus Christ, which is good news for all people. And while much of what Jesus will bring, in a way, everything, is new, all of that newness is rooted in fulfillment, fulfillment of promises, leading ultimately to a new heavens and new earth, which is not new in every sense, but it's new in spiritually significant senses. All right, we're done. Thank you.